0: God, and uh, I want to set that verse up uh, very carefully and do, do all those surrounding verses justice, so we're going to look at that, that next week. Um, I don't know how many of you know uh, what is the most popular uh, movie um, among at least the American uh, moviegoers. Uh, does anyone have a guess as to what is the all-time favorite movie that ranks in the top, you know, always is up at, the, at least number one or two? Anyone want to take a guess as to what what that is? Citizen Kane Kane is up there. It's two or three. Star Wars? Gladiator. Ooh, you know what? That's in the top 20. Okay, good deal. Gone with the Wind Wind is up there as well. Nice, nice. Casablanca. Casablanca. No, you guys are all kind of classical. They're uh, kind of like that. Okay, very simple. Avatar? No, Avatar is not. It might... No, you guys, okay, it's... Titanic. No, okay. Um, it's Shawshank Redemption. Uh, rated always one, up there with, uh, with, with the top two or three movies, uh, Shawshank Redemption. If you've never seen Shawshank Redemption, I'm not sure if it's quite a family movie, uh, but um, would en- encourage you to, uh, to think about watching that. Um, if you want to watch it with your pastor, that's fine, I'll watch it with you, but... Uh, Shawshank Redemption is a remarkable story of hope and, of course, redemption, um, about a man who is unjustly um, imprisoned. Uh, but early on in the movie, there is a character named Brooks who is, has been incarcerated in this prison called Shawshank. Um, he has been incarcerated for 50-plus years, and he is getting close to his release date. And he is very nervous about going out to the real world. Um, so... He actually attacks another man uh, in, ho- with, in the hopes that he doesn't have to go out. He can be actually given assigned more years in prison. He's that uh, afraid. And what they call this is being institutionalized. And there's a character named Red in the movie, uh, uh, Morgan Freeman, who talks about the institutionalization of people in the prison. And um, Andy is this, uh, the main character. And, of course, Andy has uh, the main uh, the, the main narrative is all about him and his his quest to get out of prison, and uh, Andy has hope, and and all the other inmates really don't have any hope, and it's a beautiful uh, picture of the contrast between someone who is sort of free in their heart. Uh, they know that they ought to be living freely. Versus others who have been institutionalized and have no hope or at least they're enslaved and they're not even aware of, of how enslaved they really are. And uh, Brooks, by the way, does get out of prison and uh, it's a kind of a tragic end to his life because he just can't, can't handle it out there. So the idea of, of being institutionalized, being trained in the customs and practices of a prison. Just just imagine what what that would be like over years and years and how you would have deeply formed habits of how you would interact with your world. Um, I think of that image when when I begin to look at Galatians 2 where we have this picture of the Apostle Paul giving an autobiographical sketch of his ministry and he's trying to love the Galatians and help them understand that they are stepping back into enslavement by pursuing anything beyond Jesus, beyond the justification that's found in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul has done is he's told a story, a true story, about his interaction with Jerusalem leaders, and that confirmed his, his gospel and then uh, as we move into Galatians 2.11, he tells another story, but this one is um, its positive. It's a good story, uh, but it, it feel, the feel of it is sort of, whoa, it has lots of tension to it, because uh, Cephas is another name for the one we call Peter. And the great apostle Peter is hanging around a town called Antioch, which was north of Jerusalem, a very unique town. Um, And there is a beautiful, multicultural, multiracial church in Antioch, and it's actually been a sending church for missions. And Peter is there in Antioch, and Paul is there in Antioch, and Peter has gone back to his old sort of uh, institutionalized way of living. He is no longer free. But he's stepping back into being enslaved. And so the story here is a a description of what happens when Peter shows up uh, sort of at the church potluck. (laughs) And and he has been used to interacting with non-Jews. Peter is free uh, to now associate with uh, people who are not culturally like him. He has learned this. In fact, Peter was given a remarkable revelation from God, a direct, special revelation. In Acts 11, we have the story of Peter being called by God to go visit a non-Jew, a Roman leader named Cornelius. And Peter is reflecting to himself about obeying God's call, and he says, I have never, he's saying to himself, I've never been inside a Gentile house. I don't eat the things they eat. This is not something I do as a culturally raised Jew, and so what happens is, is Peter is given this special revelation in Acts eleven, and it's this strange image of of a large sheet, and on the other side, you can I imagine animals peering over the sheet, but there's there's pigs and and things that Peter would has never eaten. Imagine never having had bacon. Anyway, so he and this this sheet is full of all kinds of animals and, and, and things that he's never eaten, and he hears God declare to him, these things are now clean. Peter, you don't have to be wrapped up in the ceremonial laws that would be required of you in order for you to present yourself before God. These things, eating pork, that does not affect your 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 connection with God in any way, shape, or form. So Peter has been given a special revelation from God. Now, we don't... I probably should know the chronology here, but this is going to be some some time later. We are now in Antioch. We are in Galatians 2, and the Apostle Paul is recounting his encounter with Peter. Peter. Uh, And Peter has been living in the knowledge that the ceremonial law was completely fulfilled in Jesus. Abstaining from certain foods actually didn't do anything for you anyway, and the one who makes you clean before God is not your behavior or your performance, it's Jesus. So the ceremonial law has come to a conclusion in Jesus. It's, it's, it's been abrogated, it's done. So, Peter now has been enjoying that freedom. He's, he's breaking out of that institutionalization, if, if you will. He's been enjoying it. So uh, but he shows up at this gathering, and we, is, we're not sure if it's just one event or if it's a pattern of living. I, I couldn't quite make that out in the text. Maybe some of you can figure that out. Whether or not it's just one event, because we know Paul does confront him one time, but whether or not this was actually Peter's habit. He had been eating with the Gentiles, and then there's one particular gathering, uh, and I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a more than one gathering, but at one particular gathering, we know that Paul confronts Peter. A group of people from James, that's a code language for Jerusalem, James was the pastor in Jerusalem. And a bunch of converted Jews, so these Jews believed in Jesus, have traveled up to Antioch, and they are, um, actually, they're called the Circumcision Party. This is like a sectarian group or something. They come on in. And Peter immediately joins them. And so you have in this church, and again, I imagine just a... (laughs) We're having a fellowship lunch today, so I just imagine the Jews over here and the Gentiles over here, and we're all under the great banner of Jesus, uh, who's supposed to reach all the cultures, of Pe- all cultures, and all nations. But the church is, is, divided. Okay, so Paul sees hypocrisy in this. He sees radical hypocrisy because uh, not only for the the, the Jews uh, who were practicing this, but particularly for Peter. And now it's very, very interesting what Paul does. Because what Peter is doing is this, is he's relying on his customs, on his Jewishness, on his traditions. Essentially, you could even call it nationalism. Okay? It's a distinct people. right? And Peter has fallen back on this as if this counts for something as if this means something. And Paul is sniffing this out. Paul, as a Jew, knows that really what the law did, ceremonial, civil, or moral, the, top, the Ten Commandments, all Paul knows, and you can hear that later in Galatians 2, Paul knows that the function of the law is not to build us up, it's to break us down. It's not to affirm that we're okay and that we've been practicing the law. The law is to have us cry out, I need a savior. And so Paul's wondering, why would you go back to law keeping as if that does anything for you? Well, it sort of does when you want to impress people, I guess. But Paul goes right after Peter and he does this. It's very interesting. What Peter's really practicing is he's practicing racism. And uh, that's, a, that's an ugly, terrible sin. And he, Paul could have found some Bible verses to say, hey, Peter, uh, that's not good. Christians shouldn't do this. He doesn't do that. We find in Galatians 2.14, he says that when I saw that their behavior was not in step with what? With the truth of the gospel. Now, that's very interesting. So what Paul's doing is he's looking at Peter, who is practicing racism, functionally, really, truly, and he drives it back to something far deeper and far more significant. Now, Paul could have had the right to say, Peter, he could have done a number of things. You're an apostle. Knock it off. Stop it. This is terrible for the church. You can't do that. Associate with the Gentiles. You know this. And just, in other words, you could have just put pressure on him and said, hey, stop it. Terrible. Shame on you. Right? What's at stake is not just putting shame or pressure on, on Peter and getting him to conform his behavior for a little while. He wants a substantive complete change of heart in Peter based upon how God treated Peter in the gospel. So what we have is Paul coming to Peter saying but this is not how God worked with you, Peter. Peter, he never ever regarded us as Jews who were obedient to the law. That never worked for us. We were never justified that way. Therefore, Peter, I want you to work out the implications of your justification. Everybody, everybody tracking with what I just said? That's kind of a big, big word there. Justification simply means how God declares someone righteous. And what he wanted Peter to do was to understand that righteousness is a gift by God's sheer grace alone, And Peter, you are to live and bust through all your cultural crust, bust through all your institutionalization, all your customs, and they have to come under the light of the gospel. So you can, as a... Whatever your, your particular cultural background is, you can embrace those things and hold on to those things. That, that's okay. Like we've talked about, if you're a Greek, you can keep your salads. <laughs> if you're French, you can keep your toast. Now, I wanted to do this last week. If you're Canadian, you can keep your ba- bacon. Anyway, it's, just, it's, it's a terrible thing. But. So you get to keep those things. Isn't that great? But just don't think that behavior does anything for you. It's just a personal preference, but it doesn't actually do anything for you, and never let your personal preferences impact your interaction with the world. And so what Paul does is he brings Peter back to his justification in order to get him back on center for his sanctification. Are you tracking with those two ideas? How Peter is sanctified, how he is to grow in Jesus Now, theologians talk about how justification and sanctification, justification is a one-time declaration by God. When you express faith, you are declared righteous through Jesus alone. One-time act, not a process. Sanctification is a process of conforming to God's will, of conforming to the image of Christ, of growing in holiness. And there is a continual interaction between these two very important doctrines. Interaction. So, for instance, if I feel like my sermon fell flat today and it was just a pretty average sermon and I couldn't be justified by my rhetorical skills, I couldn't feel good about my performance, where do I go? Do I go to a preaching seminar? (laughs) Get better, Pastor Todd. Well, that might help me. What do I do? What do I do when my performance feels like I fell short? Maybe my performance feels shameful. Uh, I'm filled with guilt. What do I do when I do not conform to some standard in this world? What do I do? Where do I run? I have to run to the one who gave me his son. I have to run to the one who doesn't require me perfect preaching skills in order to be okay in front of him. I have to run to my justification. Are you, are you track with what I'm saying here? This is extremely important. This is, this is the gospel freedom. This is getting out of our own institutionalization stuff. I have my stuff. I have my baggage. I have my, my way of feeling or see, being okay. Okay. Um, of thinking that I'm alright and it's often very people oriented and and so for the apostle Paul he comes to this man who should know better. <laughs> I just think of Paul coming up to Peter and went, you walked with Jesus. You were there in the water and you walked on a walk. Is this really true? You know, saying Paul's trying to figure out what's the deal with this guy. Why hasn't he shown more profound change in his heart? And it's a huge message for us as Christians. The deep issues of our hearts are just beginning to be unfolded to us. The deep institutionalization stuff that we have been bought into is just now being revealed to our hearts. What Peter is on display for us, church, because he has issues with feeling good about himself. And he uses people, and he uses his ethnicity, and he uses his background and his customs in order to actually communicate to another group of people, you, compared to me, are not okay. That is a... Is a. He's on display for us. He is a radically insecure person. Tim Keller says that every pathology in the church and every problem of a Christian is related to Galatians 2.14. If a Pastor doesn't understand Galatians 2.14 in relation to his ministry, he will live as an enslaved pastor in some way or another. He's not free from a performance standard. If the folks in the church are not working at Galatians 2.14 in their own life, you mean I'm, I'm, to, be, I'm to be living in the same way God received me. Bingo. For instance, Here's an application. By the way, we've got a bunch of applications today. Here's one one application. When you think about God? Was he generous toward you? In Jesus, was he generous toward you? All right. How's your generosity these days? That's it. When God was gracious to you, when you were uh, bitter and uh, a rebel, how are you when it comes to being gracious toward bitter rebels? There it is. So just begin to write down. Just journal. Just begin to journal. Talk to God about how he was toward you when he found you. Just begin to write it down. This was my situation. You didn't care about my cultural status. You didn't care about my socioeconomic status. You didn't care about... None of those things worked for me. You were gracious to me with no regard to those things. See? Therefore, now I am to move... In the power of that freedom. See, we don't think of our, our cultural things as sort of enslavements, but they really can be. They really can be. Um, I had a funny experience when we lived overseas. My father worked with overseas American schools. I'm gonna see how I think through how I'm gonna connect this, but it's, it's a, it was a funny moment because. So I'm living in this country called Bangladesh, which then was called East Pakistan. And so, um, my brother Jeff and I—we're having a great time. Uh, it sounds like a—it a, was—it's like one of the most it's the most poverty in the in the whole world, and it's amazing, difficult, and disease. And but we enjoyed it. And I was getting used to the curries and the the dal and rice and the, all the all the sort of exotic foods. And I got a package from a friend of mine in Southern California. So I'm in seventh grade, I think. And uh, it was a package, and it had uh, my friend Roger Carlson from Redlands, California. And he wrote me a letter, and then he included in the package uh, folded McDonald's, uh, like uh, what the French fries come in, little cartons. Okay, so like a Big Mac, carton, folded flat. And he put all these things in the package and sent them to me, and he said, I'll bet you miss this, (laughs) ha, ha, ha. Hey, man, this was awesome. You didn't get... You know, he was like, you know, seventh grade boys. This is a great burger. You didn't have it. You know, that kind of thing. So he wrote this thing. And I'm, I'm sitting in this, this country, and I'm I never... I didn't think of McDonald's once uh, when I was over there. It was interesting that I just thought in terms of... Not at the time, but now I reflect back on it. Is a, of That's a kind of institutionalization, isn't it? In other words... This and this, this and this only can be food. Wouldn't that be typical of a seventh-grade boy, right? Uh, McDonald's, right? Um, you, you sort of see it if you go on the theme of teenagers. I remember as a youth guy in California, we'd pull over with these caravans going down to Mexico, and you just you would think about let's go to some place that has salads, and let's go to some place that has good food, you know. And we we would try this. Um, and their, their preferences for Wendy's and McDonald's is just overwhelming. How can you do this for ten days? Easy. <laughs> and <laughs> and we'd pull into these places that had multiple choices of just traveling junk food, right? And uh, their, the proclivities of the heart that it, it was just too much for them to to imagine something something different. Well, now we're on a very serious subject, aren't we? The subject of of, of racism. What does Paul do? He drives Peter back to his justification. None of this worked anyway. Therefore, Peter, you know this. You know this. You've been given a special revelation by God. You understand these things. Only through Jesus are you justified. Now, let me suggest a couple of things by way of some application here. I want you to think about what makes you okay as a person. I want you to think through your cultural, some of your cultural norms, some of the things that you may be able to see, uh, and maybe, maybe not. What are the traditions, the practices, the habits that you have? For instance, when you think about people who are of a different class than you, uh, you, I don't know where you may fit or feel you fit, uh, lower, middle, upper. It's kind of how you know Americans kind of talk a little bit. When you're around someone who's of a different class than you, what happens inside you? Does it matter? Does it make you uncomfortable? Do you look down upon them? Is it separating you from other people? At that moment, preach the gospel to yourself because whatever you, you may enjoy or not enjoy as a class in this world, it doesn't matter. It never did matter. It doesn't, it, before God, it doesn't do anything for you. Maybe your background is much more refined And you're around people who are just not quite as refined as you. Remember, God found you really raw. God found you unrefined. How about political stuff when you find you're interacting with someone whose politics are just completely different than yours? You can't believe they go to the same church as you do. This is impossible. What happens? Have you, have you wedded your Christian faith to some political platform? And those two are so wedded together that you, you can't imagine a Christian embracing something else, some other perspective. Your political stance did nothing before God. Nothing. It didn't work for you. Again, racist attitudes completely, obviously, it counted nothing toward God's receiving of us. Our our nationalism, I remember, I think it was a news report, a live news report, when, in 1992, I was in Florida at the time, we were in Florida at the time, and I think it was either Time Magazine, or I believe it was a live news report, when Bill Clinton was uh, elected first-time president. And there was some gathering, and maybe I don't know, it may have been the opposite party, but it was a gasp in the room <laughs> when they realized that Bill Clinton was going to be the president. And then someone exclaimed, this is absolutely true, what to become of the kingdom of God. Now, folks, that, Nathaniel's laughing here. Folks, the kingdom of God is fine. We survived Bill Clinton. It's okay. You see, that is a wedding. To the, you've wedded the United States with the Christian faith. And maybe that's a, a scholarly discussion about how America is a Christian nation and all that type of thing, but that is... That is a that's a strange thing to say, because uh, it would be like a I don't know just like, like Rome has a really bad Caesar. Wow, <laughs> surprise! And then to say what's to become of the kingdom of God when Rome has a terrible Caesar leading it, we'd all laugh and go, "Of course we have a we have a Lord over that Caesar. He, he rose from the dead. Uh, we'll wait around and watch if Caesar can do this." Uh, so. Our king is above all these other kings. So, oh. Interesting. Pastor, who is part of our presbytery, um, a Korean man, uh, around lunch during presbytery a while back, uh, I asked him how his church was going, and we got talking about something that's very interesting. He said, I have a really hard time uh, of fellowship in my church. He said, uh, you know how... Important education is in, in Asian, in Asian families, and uh, he said, "This is how it works in my church. This is East Bay, San Francisco. Okay, so Oakland over that area." He said, uh, "In my church, uh, we have three, maybe four categories of people, and it's all based on education. If you went to an Ivy League school, you you tend to sit at these tables. If you went to say Berkeley or Stanford, then." You're kind of close to those tables, but you're over here. And if you went to some no-name college, you're kind of over here. And if you went to community college, you're stuck in the kitchen. That happens in a church. Now, what's the problem there? Well, you can point out this or that sin, but what's the failure underneath the sin? The failure underneath the sin is to process the gospel clearly enough. Your education didn't amount to a hill of beans before God. Now work it. And this is the work that every individual Christian has to do and every church has to do. You've got to work it. This means you have to individually apply it. Okay. If you're a foodie, And you just have a certain standard for your food. And you go over to someone's house and you you listen to the pastor and uh, enjoy fellowship with each other and get to know each other. So someone invites you over to their house and they serve you like packaged stuff out of a microwave with lots of macaroni and cheese. And, And you see, is it possible as something silly as food we could be have food righteousness. It's very possible in our day and age. You've got to work it. You've got to work this. When I saw that his behavior was not in line, the NIV has it right here, was not in line. Now, the ESV says in step. In line with the gospel. The word there is ortho. And we have an orthopedic surgeon in the second row here. And we were talking before church. Ortho means straight. So if you go to an orthodontist, they get your dontist straight. Right? It's dontist teeth. Must be, right? Oh, man, I'm learning things. I'm preaching. It's great. So, ortho. We are all struggling to be ortho. And what does it mean to be ortho? It means to keep thinking about your justification. Now, let me give you an illustration about how justification and sanctification work. And uh, let me see if I have any more application thoughts here. Um, that, mm, you're a really talented person. Do you look down on mediocre talent? Or maybe you have some particular skill and it just grieves you that you have to hang around people with less skill. You've got to work it. You've got to work Galatians 2.14... That skill is a gift from God, and it did not do anything for you in relation to your salvation. So, I want you to imagine that you are in a gymnasium. And this is the sanctification gym, okay? Because Peter's struggling with his sanctification. He's also struggling with his justification, so he's got a lot of things going on here. So, the sanctification gym looks like this you get in the door by grace alone. That's how you're in the gym, and what do you do in the gymnasium? What, what do they typically do? You lift weights, right, in the gym, and um, so you're in there lifting weights. Now, lifting weights is you're trying to obey God's will. That's what lifting weights is. So you're lifting weights, you're exercising, you're serving in the church, you're trying to help the body of Christ, you're you're exercising, you're exercising. Okay. Now this is a very unique gym because uh, it has no mirrors. You know how gyms have mirrors, you know? (laughs) know? Right? No mirrors. And it's a really unusual dream, too, because usually the gyms want to show you that they have Mr. Universe, who used to work out here, and so they have a a trophy, right? They have a trophy cabinet for the famous bodybuilders who used to work out there, that kind of thing. There's There's no trophies. No. So there's no mirrors, and there's no trophies. So... If you grow a muscle in this gym, you don't get a prize. It's just because you're so happy to have the chance to work out. You're just amazed that you're in the gym. You're just stunned that you get to serve the creator of the gym. You got it? Everyone tracking with this? Okay. Now, here's what happens when I lift weights. I can drop them, or they can be too heavy. And this might happen to you. If you start making progress in your sanctification you're going to fall flat on your face once in a while. You're not going to do well. And I hope you come, keep coming to church <laughs> because we're all we're all tripping and falling inside the gym, okay? Now what do you do when you fall? You think about how you got in the gym. I got in the gym by grace alone. It wasn't based on my performance anyway. So I did drop a weight. I did fall short. But that's not the big issue. The big thing is, I'm in the gym to begin with. And the foundation of the gym, the cement, all the way across the gym floor is your justification. And that justification goes all the way across your life. And the door entering was uh, by grace alone. And that that foundation goes all the way across your life. And all the time you're working out in the gym, you're dropping weights. You're dropping more than you think. uh, And you're dropping weights. And then at the end, uh, the, the gym does run out of square foot footage and you, your life comes to an end. And there's another door. And this one's got clouds and a picture of heaven. And that's called glorification. Now, there were no mirrors in the gym, no mirrors in the gym. But you were, while you're working out, you were looking at something. You were looking at the cross. And the more you looked at the cross, the more you love the person who brings that power to you, and the more desire there is to respond. And you're completely safe because you cannot fall off this foundation. You can't. You can't. You can't. And so what does it mean to work out? It means that I am in lining up my life according to how my God came for me. How did he come for me? He came graciously for me, not regarding anything about me, not even my clothes, not even my polished manners, not even my skills, not even my religious performance. He came to me that way. It's never been about me at all. And so now we begin to translate this, if he came for me like that, then I am to come for others like he came for me. And I'm going to end with this. If you work this, and you take your own heart to task, and you wrestle with your soul, And you work this, and you work it, and you work it. And if it meant this for you, Jesus, that you came and you died on a cross, naked before the world, your heart given for people, for sinners, your willingness to include all kinds of people in deep trouble, You came for people enslaved. You came for people institutionalized. People who could not imagine a life outside the prison. You came for those, and that was me. I could not imagine life outside the prison. A guy named Jack Miller on the East Coast. uh, Pastor, PCA pastor. uh, Written a number of influential books and Uh, he writes in his, uh, I believe it's his leadership book, he writes this story of he and his wife, Rosemarie, and they're walking along the beach in Portugal. And uh, there's this group of men, very isolated. No one is around them. Some people gawking at them. And it is a, a group of homosexual men who are there on the beach, and they're naked. And Jack, who was a very brave evangelist, I met him in, in seminary, and a uh, tremendous, tremendous man who, I, I think he shared his faith every three hours. That was my, that was my impression. Uh, Jack turns to his wife and says, Honey... Uh, When do you think was the last time these men ever had a conversation with anybody? Let's go talk to them. Now, here was a guy who did the work of Galatians 2.14. What was Jesus willing to become in order to rescue sinners? To rescue sinners. What was he willing to become? He walked toward our need. So they went and they talked to these men, befriended them, extended kindness to them, tossing aside all cultural barriers, personal barriers, all this stuff. I would ask you would help me to do the hard work of Galatians 2.14 and you do the hard work as well. Nathaniel, elders, myself, others, we have small groups. We're all trying to do the hard work. And it will make perfect sense that we all struggle with this. Perfect sense. All right. Let's pray. Lord, in this moment, I pray you'd convince us of your extraordinary love for us. Jesus, thank you for coming, for going on a cross, for... Uh, being stripped of all that you could ever trust in, and yet your hope was in your Heavenly Father,